Oh, let's go. Starting recording. Are you frozen? Are you there? Can you move? You look frozen to me. I can hear you, but okay. All right, there it goes. That's what okay, I'm looking. I see. Now, now we're going. All right. Okay. So this is a very interesting question that you've asked, and and that is is that what is the underlying source of this profound knowledge about criticism? Right. And, nurturing. and nurturing, exactly the nurturing criticism. All right. So this is actually built into our culture. But the first experience that I could say is, is that you can see that built right into the suttas at the high level of the fetters in the sense that the high fetters are the ones that are uh, when we call it high. That's a mistake that I just made the better um, and the real issue is whether it is rupa or a rupa and in the poly what that means is physical versus not physical so what we mean then by the lower fetters are rupa and that the rupa uh, fetters the lower fetters are those that can be seen easily so you can see greed you can see ill will maybe not in our own mind but we can certainly see it in uh the the society we live in, we can see it in other people's behavior. We can see that greed was the reason that this, that, and the other sequence of events happened and that kind of stuff. So we can really understand um, greed and ill will. And not only that, because we like it and not like it at a very, very natural level. So what is the underlying cause of that? The underlying cause of all of that is of the competition that we bring about in the sense of winning and losing in the sense of um, that if we win, we survive, and if we lose, we die. That's the survival instinct. So things get kind of black and white like that. You either get out of this alive or you don't. And we tend to bring that kind of mentality to every situation. And what we begin to understand is, is that when we have a mental competition with someone, we either win or lose that competition based upon the criteria that we ourselves set. In other words, I'm now I'm going to compare me with the teacher based upon the teacher's knowledge. Rather than comparing myself with the teacher based upon the pants that he's wearing. You see, we set the criteria. Or we uh, we judge the teacher based upon something else that we can win at. Or lose. A question uh, is uh -huh. comparing can be considered as a Sankara, Just, uh, like comparing and judging. Is it like a Sankara? How we do it is based upon the Sankara. That we do it is based upon this deep interfere of this that comes along with the survival instinct. OK, so we've got basically a box of toys in the sense that we've got the box itself. What is the box that keeps all of this stuff happening generation and after generation with human beings? What is this box that the baby is born with that he puts all of this stuff into? 
Okay, and that would be the instinct. So the instinct is, is the box that carries this stuff. And in that instinctual box, built right into the box is this survival issue. Okay, so everything that comes into the box has to fit into the box in this sense of the the survival issue. So many, many things which really are not a survival issue at all, if we look at it in a wise way, we actually do see it falsely as a uh, survival issue. In other words, false positives of fear that we become afraid of things that are really not fearful at all. How does that happen is is because we are taught what to fear, not how to fear. How to fear is natural. It's built right into the uh, DNA. It's our survival instinct. We wouldn't survive without it, right? That's the well, sometimes whole point. It's, that instinctual fear is very characteristic. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So how we fear is built in, but what we fear is learned behavior. So it's very, very natural for us to compete with other people over survival. Who gets to eat? You know, if there, if if you've only got one morsel of food, and everybody is starving, if you get that morsel of food, you will survive, and the others die. Okay, that's how it kind of goes. Um, at least that's the mentality of scarcity. Which is also the mentality that we are taught. We are taught a mentality of scarcity. There's not enough to go around and you have to fight for your share. The reality of the situation is that we live in a paradise and there's plenty enough. Inside. There really, there really is plenty enough. But we don't see that we uh, and we are taught generation by generation, time after time after time, that really there's not enough. There's not enough love. There's not enough security. There's not enough um, cooperation. There's not enough friendship. And in order to get enough friendship, we need warfare. That's where the delusion comes in is we've got to fight for getting enough. But the deeper uh, ignorance is, is that there is not enough. For in fact, the reality is that there is enough. That's an important point now. So this is that foundation of the fear is coming from the fact that there's not, we have the feeling that there's not enough. But many times I, we I think it, it's a lie in the mind. Or, or not. Yeah, that, that there is not enough. It's, I mean, there is no reason to think that there is not enough. Well, we've I mean, been taught I, I, that. I'm trying to think what reason is there, but I, I don't see any reason for someone to think there is not enough. But that was ancient times that the humans got into the habit of there's not enough. And now we built a society where there's plenty enough, but we still have the mentality of there's not enough. So even um the 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 newest joke on the uh um, on the hill is is that elon musk and jeff bezos are now in competition with each other over space rockets and who's the richest and all of that kind of stuff the competition but you could see that wait a minute both of them should have the mentality i've got enough why should i be com competing with this guy he could be my best friend together we could be twice as rich as anyone else in the world but they don't think it like that 
but think of it in competition because each one of them got to the place that he is in competition. We compete with each other over there's not enough. Now, where did Jeff Bezos or where did uh, uh, Elon Musk pick that habit up? I would say in diapers. They weren't born with that competitive mentality, but they were taught it as little kids. And we are all in that same society. It's like we all swim in that same ocean of ignorance that there's not enough and that we have to compete to get enough. And so that gives rise to if you don't work, you don't eat. Rather than the idea, oh, there's plenty enough. If you don't work, that's all right. I've got plenty enough. I'll feed you. And now we can be a big, happy family. Why is it that we naturally think that way? The answer is, number one, it goes against our instincts. And number two, it goes against our learned behavior that society has been teaching us all along. So that could be what you could call then the original sin. The original sin is the ignorance about that there's not enough. That this, in fact, is not paradise. It does, does in fact, need something. Those things are pretty scarce around here, especially if you're in a desert. So I want to add also what goes also with the ignorance is being attached to the outside world and thinking that's all there is. Well, that's exactly right, because in fact, we don't live in the outside world. And so we're out there judging the outside world in a way we're reflecting the judgment of the inside world that is not actually uh, so much that it's an outside as a desert when in fact it really is a paradise. The the real issue is, is that I conceive of that paradise as a desert on the inside. In other words, we feel longing or we feel like we need something or we feel incomplete or we feel scared. It's that basic feeling that's instinctual. And so the question is uh, not that when you were born, did you uh, were you born with these instincts that can be thought of, let us say for a moment, as a loaded gun? Yeah, we were born with these instincts. We were born with this loaded gun. So now the question is, which direction do we point that gun? Because ultimately what we need to do is to recognize that we should not be pointing that gun at all. But in the beginning, in fact, ordinary people go around looking, what direction am I going to punt this gun? Am I going to point it in the direction that I win? Or am I going to point it into the direction that I lose? And if I'm in the habit of losing, then I will continue to point my gun in that direction of he's got more than me. And so I lose again and I wind up in jealousy. I wind up having to work hard to get something that I want. Right? So this is where that comparison comes in. It comes in as a way of solving or absolving our fears of, of, of actually our fears. That as the politician once said, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Fear is the problem when it's done ignorantly. Because almost all of the fear that we have comes out of ignorance. So if we really see what's going on, there's nothing to fear. But we have to practice that because we're so much in the habit of going around having thoughts that wind us up in a state of fear 
or anxiety or incompleteness or greed or wanting something, etc. And so this is what that fetter at this higher level of Irupa, because we can see or we can uh, uh, see the presence of uh, greed and ill will in the sense of uh, competition and anger. That, but what we're not seeing is the mechanism that's inside the mind that creates that. And this is what we're talking about that is actually um, based in fear, this issue of competing. And the way that we compete is by choosing a criteria and in a way, if you understand that, that means that you can begin to set your criteria so that you win absolutely every argument. Yeah, well, you that's, win that's, that's the thing. I could not find a criteria that I can hold on. When I choose a criteria, the mind like chooses at random. It goes away and uh, I All get right. this criteria and then there, then there is another criteria. And I find myself judging all the time and it's out of control. Mm -hmm. I, I tried that. I tried it. All right. So here is a clear example that you are here and someone criticizes you. And what he criticizes you for could be a fairly significant thing for both him and you, and that a lot of people know it. In other words, he has now accused you publicly of a crime that you actually committed. What is the normal reaction to that? Well, my reaction would be just uh, pay attention to your mind. My mind is none of your business. Really. Well, that's who you are yeah, now. If, what if would it's be someone, ordinary? If someone I don't know. I mean, if he's a teacher or something who wants my best, right. thing, it would be another the, approach. The first yeah. thing that happens is, no, it was not me. I did not do it. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't Okay, go denial. Why? Because uh, doing that is uh, something that is a no-no. That puts me in a one-down position. It puts me in a vulnerable position, and I become afraid. Therefore, dealing with my fear, I want to get rid of that fear, and the easiest way to get rid of that fear is by whitewashing the fear, by saying, no, it's not me. I didn't do that. Yeah, it's, it, that's a weak position, Damaraj. It's really, it really, but it's the state where exactly. we start. That's the place that we start at. That's the wrong behavior for getting accused. Okay, the next way of looking at it is is that uh, maybe I did and maybe I didn't. In the sense of depends upon which way you look at it as what kind of laws that it was or was it me or not and all of that kind of stuff but really if we look at it from another possession a more noble way is is that yes i did it but now we have to make resolution because it was a crime or something like that and that we're willing to pay the punishment willing to pay the price or whatever like that that's the next level but the highest level is actually gratitude. Thank you very much for pointing that out. Wow, what an education that is. That that's you know, I needed that wake up because otherwise if I'm in the state of avoidance, then I'll continue to make that same mistake over and over again. Or if I'm confused about it, I'll stay ignorant and still 
continue to do it. It's only when we fully wake up to say, wow, you're not only right, but that's excellent. Yeah, Adam, I don't think I can do that. Really. I mean, to be yes, honest. Yes, you can. All I you mean, have I, to do I, is start to practice it. I, I really don't want to take advice from anyone, really, because it's, uh, you know, okay, if I say, okay, thank you, really, I appreciate for your advice, there's the defilements in his mind. It's like I'm encouraging. Oh, but one of the things that you're doing is you're seeing this in the sense that you're separate. All right. So let's bring this guy who has now pointed out that you have failed very close to where he's your absolute world uh, class uh, lifelong best friend. Yeah, I, I take it. Then I take it. But someone else, I, I just don't. I can't. Really, and I, then, okay. Them. But I can't. It, so whatever random person that said that to you, if he is, in fact, your lifelong best friend right now, then you can accept it. But you see, we don't want to accept advice from enemies because the advice never comes as advice from an enemy. Advice only comes from a friend. The enemy always gives it as an accusation or as a criticism, okay? So even when we are told by a best friend, and by the way, the next thing that's so much closer would be when you realize yourself that you have just been doing something wrong, then it's actually easier for you to not, in fact, you don't even have to forgive yourself because really what's going on is the determination that's a lesson to learn and that's a lesson learned well enough that I'm going to finish with that. I'm not going to do that anymore. But that was a dangerous thing. And a clear example of that is, is uh, sticking your hand into the fire. When you stick your hand into the fire, you yourself feel the heat. You take your hand out with the resolution. I'm not going to do that anymore. Right? Okay, so we begin to see the whole world like that. But in fact, that enemy is nothing but something that's hot. And he wants to make you hot. That's why he is uh, criticizing you, is to make you hot. And the recognition is, is that, oh, you can renounce that kind of heat. Oh, I don't have to go there. I can take what he says as criticism and, and, and make it cold immediately. You can blow on it and turn it ice cold. What is that? That's what we mean by nibbana, is to let's chill this thing out. Let's not let it be hot. All right, so this, this whole idea then of criticism means that we're actually in fear, in greed and ill will and delusion when we're out there criticizing. This is the same story as Adam and Eve become judgmental they eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, which means they were in a paradise finding evil things in their paradise. They were heating it up, burning it down. And there they were in paradise. Now, the story is, is that they were kicked out of paradise by God. But actually, if you think about it, the paradise itself was God. God was the paradise and they burned it down with their criticism. So they were the ones who lost their paradise was because they themselves destroyed it. 
that's the more important point for us to understand is that we ourselves, you and I, live in paradise. But we constantly go around destroying it by criticizing it. Why? Because of fear. We're afraid of things. So if we address the fear so that we're no longer afraid of anything, then we can recognize that we were in paradise all along. So that whole bottom line or that bottom issue of fear needs to be addressed and the easy way to do it. In fact, that's what these five Arupa fetters are about, is their avenues down into this issue of the bottom line is fear. And so um, another of the higher fetters, this is called Rupa Raga and A Rupa Raga. Now A Rupa Raga and Rupa Raga is almost like the um, the conflict between reality and the self-preservation instinct, to where the self-preservation instinct is Rupa Raga. I've got to stay alive, and the reality is A Rupa Raga. No, it doesn't matter how much you cling to life, you're eventually going to lose it. In fact, not just life itself, but anything that you cling to, you're going to lose it. And when you do, there's going to be a kind of a mini death along with that. Because we cling to things. So the A Rupa Raga and the Rupa Raga become balanced in a way. And in that balance, you become fearless because you recognize whether you live or die that's all that's going to happen anyway. And a way of looking at that is 300 years, 500 years, both of us will be completely forgotten. Nobody will remember anything about either one of us, which meant that any and everything I do for my whole life matters to squat because nobody cares, because nobody knows, because nobody remembers, because they've all died. 300 years of people dying out and all of them eventually forgot. So there are many millions of people who lived 300 years ago that nobody remembers or knows anything about. That things arise and they pass away. Things go to a rupa. And so if we cling, then that's the source of fear. And then the exhibit of the fear is the competition for staying alive. When in fact, the natural flow is that whether you live or die is not really important anyway in the greater scam, uh, scan of things. That it actually fear that we hold is for our own individual body-mind complex and the survival of it. Where in fact your fear then doesn't amount to the hill of beans because your whole life doesn't amount to a hill of beans. 300 years ago, we'll all forgotten all about it. So why should I be afraid of anything now? I'm going to lose it all anyway. So in that regard, we can become kind of fearless in the face of death. So when we begin to address fear itself, then we recognize then that even though someone is criticizing us, there's nothing to fear there because he can't take anything away from me because I don't have anything in the first place. Right. But on the other hand, we can recognize that when we criticize others. Then we're basically reversing that course in the sense of thinking that I am better than he is. 
that my fear is more important than his. But when we begin to see everything in communion and everything in friendship and nothing really matters anyway, now we can become friends and just enjoy the show without being afraid of it. Or another way of seeing it is, is that we begin to get the bigger picture. We begin to see what's going on. We begin to see in a way that um, a, a good example is the roller coaster. You know what I mean by a roller coaster? Okay. Now, if you uh, are a kid who really wants to ride that roller coaster, you stand in front of it and you look and go up and down and loop and all of that, and you really see what's going on. So when you get in it, you know what's going on. But you take your grandmother with you, and she really doesn't want to ride the roller coaster because she's afraid. And because she's afraid, she doesn't want to do anything with the roller coaster, so she doesn't look at it, she doesn't inspect it, she doesn't really see what's going on. But she eventually sits down anyway, terrified, and all she's doing is clutching her purse and not enjoying the ride because she's afraid when it goes up, she's afraid when it goes down, and she's not really paying attention to what's going on, and she's not enjoying the ride. If she would have only inspected the roller coaster, recognizing that hundreds of people ride the roller coaster, and everybody made it off alive, and everybody was happy with this roller coaster, why am I being so unhappy with it? Okay, so now we can take that whole idea of the roller coaster. If you're the bright eyed kid who sees the whole show and wants to ride it, then you can enjoy the show. But if you are fearful, we don't look, we don't inspect, and then we get surprised at every twist and turn. And we think that that's what's going on. That when that turn, when that roller coaster is spinning really hard to the left and we feel those great G forces, we think that's the roller coaster. No, every roller coaster ride ends with the roller coaster coming to a stop and everything is easy going and, and survive. So why can't we have that kind of feeling while we're riding the roller coaster? Why do we have to be afraid of what's going to happen with it? Because you're not going to get out alive anyway. You're not going to survive this roller coaster. You're just not. It's going to come to a stop. So why don't we enjoy the ride? This is the point about competition then is, is that my idea of the roller coaster should be this way, different than the roller coaster the way it really is. But if we're satisfied with the way things are, we become very much less judgmental, or if we intentionally become less judgmental, then we're more likely to see what's really going on. So they work hand in hand. They're like two wings of a bird. So that you can work on both sides at the same time. One is you can approach it from the position of. <clears throat> I know what's good and I will go about that. This is what we meant. And when we had the conversation about following the rules, the rules are actually worked out because they're beneficial. But the guy who follows the rules, if he's uh, not careful, the logical thing that happens, he becomes a goody two-shoes. He becomes judgmental. I'm better than you are because I can follow the rules. But the rules are good in the beginning for a wise Dhamma dude like yourself. We can use the rules to help us to clean out the mind 
but it's only when the mind is clean can we actually follow the rules easily and happily. Right? That it's the cleaning out of the mind that's the important thing, but we can use the rules to help us clean out the mind. And then when we're cleaning out the mind with the rules, we don't need the rules anymore. Sort of like after your tunnel is dug or after your house is built, you don't need the toolbox anymore. So this is what all of these spiritual practices are, is to help us become fearless or free from fear. Once you're completely free from fear, then when people criticize you, it's not an attack. You don't feel that that you've, uh, oh no, what will happen to poor me if this word gets out? If everybody had that opinion of me, but let's be honest, most people, almost everyone, they're unwholesome. There's going to be advice, it's going to be. That's what we mean by the society. So you were born in an unwholesome society. Get over it. And I do mean that literally, just get over that. (laughs) Just because um, we recognize that the society that we lived in is almost like once you're a fish who recognizes that the water that you're swimming in is polluted, now we begin to find some fresh water to swim in. Okay. Uh, Something else, you said about the roller coaster, it's going to stop anyway we're going to die anyway but also we can like die right now i mean if we can bring the mind to deep meditation we can make it stop right now it's possible it's really possible absolutely this is is not the only choice i mean we have the other option to make it stop you're using an important word here in fact that we can bring things back into the loop here in the sense that if someone criticizes you and you don't like it because you're afraid, then either you'll deny it or slough it off or try to pay it off or try to absorb your guilt so that you can feel better. But the other way that we're looking at it, the more noble way, is to when he criticizes you, you can see that as a friendly gesture, a wake-up call. He's giving us a gift. Thank you, sir, for your gift of pointing out my wrongdoing for me so that I can see it. Now that I see it, I can resolve it and say I'm not going to do that anymore. And so um, one of the points is, is that well, somebody criticizes you for something that you did five years ago, let's say, and he's just discovered it. And so he's out complaining to your neighborhood about when you were five years ago, you did this, that, and the other thing. The natural answer would be that, yes, I did do that, but I learned a lesson from that and I don't do it anymore. Congratulations to me for having learned that lesson. I don't do that anymore. Thanks for reminding me that I've learned that lesson. That that thing that happened five years ago, I learned a lesson about it, and now you're bringing it up again. And I and uh, I can say, yes, but that's not me now. Okay. well, this guy who brought it up. Something that happened five years ago, the one who's most likely to bring that up is you yourself, because it's in your memory bank. And so when you remember something that you did. Some wrongdoing that you did five years ago. 
you can reflect it. Oh, yeah, but I learned a lesson about that, and that's not who I am. I wouldn't do that now. Isn't that wonderful? Congratulations. It's marvelous that I have changed, that I don't do those things anymore. I've got higher standards now. That's not who I am now. That was a different person. This is the whole quality of about the issue of self, because the whole point about the self is, is that I am the one who did that thing five years ago is the delusion. Because you're not, you're not the person who did that five years ago. You've made a change. So recognize that instead of feeling guilty all over again for having something that you remember doing five years ago, you can say, hey, that's not me. I've learned from that. And so instead of having the memory of something that we did five years ago and then feeling bad and feeling guilty and feeling afraid and feeling remorse and all of that kind of stuff, instead we can say, we can wake up and say, yeah, but I don't do that anymore. Congratulations for having made a change. All right, but so almost that's, that's, always that's, that's, when. That's the natural uh, way. I mean, someone points out your faults, or usually people do that. They want to make you feel guilty. They want to make you feel sorry. And uh, these you want feelings. To make, I, I don't, but I don't you too want to make yourself feeling sorry. I mean, that's what our whole victimhood is. Now you're saying, well, not now I don't do it. And that would be more correct. You don't do that anymore. Congratulate yourself for having come out of that which you used to be that was unwholesome. Rather than every time we remember that unwholesome incident, we have another unwholesome moment in that memory. We can unhook our bad feelings from the memory itself and have a new set of good feelings with it based upon the fact that we know that that happened, but it wasn't me. I made a change. And I congratulate myself for having made a change. I don't do that kind of stuff anymore. Yeah. Well, the best advice that comes really, like the real best advice, it comes from yourself. That's. Mm -hmm. uh, that's Congratulations. Important. We don't do that stuff anymore. That's the way of looking at it. And so we have both the gratitude for having made the change as well as received the gift of that change so that I don't have. I don't now have to suffer the way that I suffered five years ago when I got caught. Uh, and, uh, you know, the thing about criticizing and nurturing, it's really easier. I mean, we talked about that before, but it's really easier in a, mon in a monastic life because you don't deal with the world a lot. So you don't mm -hmm. have uh, a lot of danger. You don't need That's to, especially you know. true if you're around monks who are into nurturing rather than into criticizing because they haven't become fully monks yet. So you'll have a lot of people who are, are monks in their cloth, but they're not monks in the mind yet. It takes a while. And so they still criticize. But the old Dhamma dudes, the ones who have learned about it, they accept the young students. That was the thing that really got me. I've mentioned this before, kind of, but when I first watched, worked, went to watch Suan Mok, it was like arriving at home, kind of like the first time after I'd been years in India and all into this other stuff. I felt like Achan Po 
had been, you know, he was my home. He gave me that kind of nourishment. He treated me like I was okay. And so that's what I'm trying to instill with my students is that spark of you're okay. It's all right to nurture yourself. He nurtured me. He was my home. He became my mommy. This was actually the, what we mean by the change of lineage. It's from the old way that normally people operate that has to do with get the job done, do what you're told to do, pick up your toys, and everything's okay. So I get that in experience from Achan Po. Now, Eric Byrne in psychology talks directly about um, critical thinking or the critical parent criticizing the child versus the nurturing parent that nurtures the child. And this is one of the teachings in the psychology, especially those who get Eric Byrne. The problem is, is even though they know that intellectually, they don't practice it well enough and often enough to make it stick. They keep going back into the critical thinking over and over again, back into the critical thinking because we get in the habit of the critical thinking because the critical thinking we use that because deep down inside there's still some fear there. But when we are completely fearless, then the nurturing is natural. But if we, even though we still have fear, if we keep practicing the nurturing and practicing the nurturing and practicing the nurturing, the fear will go down. And then our nurturing becomes, um, let us say, more accessible, that in fact it's a skill to be developed. That becoming fearless or feeling safe is a skill to be developed. Every baby is born crying and full of fear, full of danger, is in our instincts, is wired, is built in. In fact, the, the whole survival instinct is to take that big first breath and take a beller. Say, I'm here, all right? Don't mess with me, I'm strong. That's the first thing that an infant says is, what the hell is going on here? That kind of expression, all right? And that is based upon of uh, the issue of the fear that arises at the point of birth when now the baby is starved because the placenta and the uh, the eustachian tubes and all the blood and all that kind of stuff is over. And so um, it's almost like that we're in a warm hot tub and we're getting nourished and everything is there and all of a sudden the earthquake happens and the bottom drops out and we're on our own. All right, and so that instinct of fear kicks in that causes that first breath. If you were completely happy and satisfied after you'd born, you'd immediately die. So that instinct has to kick in. That survival instinct has to come on big time. That's the first big feeling that we have is the feeling of terror. And that terror requires that huge in-breath that the child has. Okay, so that whole point is, is that that's how we start life. We start off in fear. We start off in fear because it's part of the DNA, it's part of the makeup. It comes generationally that way. So that means that basically we need to have the nurturing to be talked out of being afraid, that the child has to be reassured that, hey, things are all right. Yeah, you've lost your favorite hot tub, but mommy will still take care of you. 
Yeah, and, and that's the the interesting part because if there is no nurturing, it's difficult to get out of uh, criticizing. Nurturing inside, like bring the bring in the mind inside and be safe inside. That's mm -hmm. uh, that's what I I I want to try to remember all the time. I mean, so I forget, mm -hmm. but. Well, that's okay that you forgot. Nurture the fact that you forgot. Just because you forget and then remember that you forgot does not mean that you have to be critical of your mind and point out that you forgot. Instead, remember to nurture right then and there. To remember just to start nurturing. To take a deep breath, just relax. You don't have to criticize yourself because you weren't mindful a moment ago. Be happy that now you're mindful. Yeah, okay. when, when everything is Never mind uh, that you used to be afraid, come out of the fear right now. But if you're bothered because you're in fear, then that will make you even more afraid. If you hate your anxiety, it'll just build more anxiety. Yeah, well, yeah I, I know how to deal with that. Really. Like crush them like the thieves. Yeah, that's how we build it up. We get more and more and more uptight. We literally talk ourselves into it. And we talk ourselves into it by trying to get out of the uptightness and we just make more of it. Yeah, well, Because we're criticizing it. We don't like it. We don't want it. I want to get rid of it. Well, the whole art of trying to get rid of the anxiety is what creates anxiety. The anxiety in the first place was the feeling of trying to get rid of the fear. Yeah, well, thankful I, I can deal with that with anxiety, with fears. I can I can deal with it. But it's, it comes to the like. Uh, the, yes. The, uh, like, so uh, when there's happiness inside, and someone criticizing me, I'm, I'm nurturing. The approach is going to be different. That's for sure. Exactly. So we can use the times when people criticize us as an opportunity to wake up to say, "Is there a lesson to learn here?" What can I do? What advantages are here? Another it, it, way of ultimately, it, it doesn't matter. Like the outside, it's, it's stuck in my mind, right? That the outside world, it doesn't matter. So if someone comes to criticize me, like, why? What are you doing? That's, I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind. It's safe for me, and it's also safe for him. Like, I mean, I, I, I keep my own business. I'm mindful of myself. Why? Ah. But see, in, in a way, what you're talking about is, is that you want to guard yourself against that world out there. That's okay. It. But the point that I'm making is, is that once you get that nurturing really going on the inside, now it will be who you are in the sense that you are nothing but nurturing. And in that regard, that means that now you are the nurturing for all of the problems of the world. And we can practice that by nurturing the very thoughts that when we come up with an enemy or we come up with someone that we have in our own mind that we don't like that caused a problem or we had a, an incident with or anything, any of that time that we come up with the idea of a person, nurture them. Say, wow, I was not your friend, but now I'll be your friend. Anything that I held against you, I forgive you for. Because in fact, that's the cleaning out of your own mind. It never mind. It never mind what happens to them. It's the fact that now we've changed our thought from them being an enemy into being 
a nurturing friend. And so you can begin to have uh, nurturing thoughts to the bully who beat you up when you were eight years old. I remember his name, by the way. <laughs> That's funny like that. In that particular age, I was in a particular town and the only person name I remember from all of the people that I knew in that town at that particular time was the name of the guy who beat me up, the bully who beat me up. I remember his name. I don't remember anybody else's name. Isn't that amazing? That the human mind is like that, that we settle in and cling to and hold on to the problems, the troubles, the misbehaviors, the issues of life. And we forget all of the good stuff. So here we are, when you remember the world, you don't remember the nurturing parts of the world, you remember about how bad off the world is. To where in fact, actually, the world is a marvelous place. And, we, and it's filled with a lot of marvelous human beings. They just don't nurture each other enough. That's the only issue. So knowing that, that means that now I need to do some nurturing for them because they're not getting enough nurturing because they're being too critical. And here I am being critical of them. By being critical of them, you're playing their game. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, I know. I know. You notice that. Okay, so now you can have more of a friendly attitude about the worst part of the world. They're just part of the show. Yeah. Well, mm, that if yeah, you, that, that, what would a movie be like if it didn't have any villains in it anyway? We need a villain. If we don't have a villain, we don't have a hero. Yep. That's true. No, it's something that I noticed. When the, the nurturing part is going well, well, everything's going well. It usually takes some disturbance inside. Like, uh, you know, inside you, you kind of miss it or you forget or you make a mistake. Things mm -hmm. change in the outside because you, I don't deal with them correctly. So mm -hmm. I miss out. So it starts here. It starts on the inside. It doesn't start on the outside. That's what, I, what I've seen. Actually, you're right there. The question, though, is, is what are you going to do about that? And you're and you're right now, the way that you've kind of uh, uh, mentioned it or talked about it is to escape from the world and draw inside. And I'm saying be cautious of the escaping because it's not the world that you want to escape from, literally. It's the garbage that the world taught you. Because everyone in the world is just suffering from the same garbage that they were taught that you're suffering from. It's the garbage in the mind that makes people misbehave on the outside. Everybody's got that. So just by you withdrawing from them does not necessarily make things that much better anyway. No, we actually have to actively practice the nurturing. It's okay that I screwed up. Because that's in the past, I'm over that now, I've learned my lesson, and everything is okay. Again, we do not have to um, criticize our own mind because we've remembered some bad behavior in the past. We can forgive it, and get over it, and be happy right now. And when we're really good at that, 
then we can handle the new issues on the outside world. The very thing, things that happened, let us say, five years ago that made us miserable when we think about it now, that all is going to happen again, which means we're going to be having more misery in the future unless we can get over the misery right now of the past. So if we can look at some crime that you committed five years ago, and say joyfully and happily, wow, I'm glad I don't do that anymore. That was such a mad lesson. Wow, did I feel really bad and miserable and hurt a lot of people, but I don't do that anymore. Now I have back to the joy. That's kind of mental renunciation or mental cleaning. And not only are we cleaning the bad feelings of the guilt that we had for the episode, we can clean the episode out also. This is where wisdom, real wisdom comes in, is that it doesn't matter. It's okay. Right now, feel good, feel happy. And if you can feel good and happy now, you can take that feel good, feel happy out to other people and help them feel that way too. Rather than leaving the miserable world. Yeah, and that way, uh, I mean, we didn't talk about uh, too much, but, uh, but that way we, we don't have to enjoy the world. And there's happiness. <laughs> exactly. That is not the, the world person. we need to be fixed anyway. The world is not broken. What needs to be fixed is the trash that I've accumulated. And when I throw that trash out, then I can be really happy and joyful. And now I can treat the world with my happy and my joyful. And that may help the world clean out some of its own garbage. But that still is up to the world. Yeah, the garbage is still in the wall. Or what I want to say, because what I noticed, what happens for me is, like the, usually it's it's greed that comes first. Uh, I mean, if I if I pay attention, it's greed because it seems like it's benign. It's not gonna do anything. It's not gonna hurt. It looks inoffensive, and then the mind goes outwards. It starts ah, that. that. like that, and then it's like it's the roller coaster, right? Right. So. Basically what you're like the temptation. The Buddha talks about that in the following way. He talks about that when you're talking about it benign, what we could say is it's okay for me to do that because I like doing it. In other words, we get gratification out of what we're doing and we call it benign because we want to do it. But once we begin to inspect and and see what's really going on, we sometimes, not always, but sometimes we begin to see the dangers. And when we see the dangers in that dukkha, then the point is, is to come out of it. When we see the danger, we want to find an escape. All right. So one way that a child, if he's, if a child lives in a community of people that really mistreat him and he doesn't like them and he and they don't like him, he wants to escape that community to get away from it. But he learned how to deal with that community. And because that's how he dealt with that community, he takes that mentality to the next community. And so he creates the tension in the next community that he learned in this community. So maybe the tension came from these people. He picked it up and now he's taking it and implanting that tension into the next community. This is what um, Richard Dawkins meant by a meme. 
which is the same thing as like a germ, that you can catch a virus in this community and then take that virus and then infect this group of people with it. This is how that stuff is spread. However, if you can be infected by this community, come off over here and get completely clean from it, then when you go back into this community over here, you're not going to infect them, but you've gotten cured. You've been through quarantine as a, in a way, the quarantine of the mind, all right? But that's also true that you can come back to this community that's infected and you don't get infected again. Then, in fact, you may, in fact, know, uh, have learned some doctor skills so that you can actually help this community in small ways for some individuals to help come out of their mental infections. But that's the mental um, meme here that we're talking about. Men is criticizing, finding good and bad and right and wrong and up and down with people rather than just be satisfied or the critical virtues of nurturing. So if you can learn to nurture yourself, especially at the point of time when you recognize some wrongdoing, when you see Dukkha, can you actually go from Dukkha to Dukkha Naroda? Can you change it? Can you come? Can you see that Dukkha and then sidestep it and get out of its way? Sometimes it's stepping. Yeah, sometimes from Dukkha to Dukkha Naroda, like I can do it instantly. Sometimes it takes time. Like I have to push to it and mm -hmm. take. Well, and sometimes like, pride right, doesn't go away, unfortunately. It's something like it's really deep in the heart, I guess. I try. Well, it, you, you keep taking that right effort. Like, keep uh, taking the effort to take it out and remember Dukkha Naroda and to come out of that. When you see that Dukkha, don't just pile on over, oh, that's so bad, I see that Dukkha, oh, it's so terrible. Like forgetting, oh, I forgot. Oh, poor me, I can't remember anything. Oh, this is so much hard work. And meditators have those kind of thoughts. They're sitting there <laughs> meditating, criticizing their meditation rather than practicing the meditation. Well, never mind. It doesn't matter anyway. Let you know, me come back. And about, like when in like in the meditation, sometimes the dukkha arises and I see it and I can get it out. Dukkha Niroda. Keep practicing that. Sometimes I can like I stay with it and I get it out. Sometimes it's like the dukkha i don't know like its reasons maybe it's complicated or it has like a very strong hold in the heart and i cannot get it out it's unfortunate but forgive uh, yourself for that nourish yourself for that nourish yourself for the fact that you can see that sometimes you can get out of it sometimes you can get out of a little bit effort Sometimes you can get out of it with a whole lot of effort, and sometimes no matter what you do, you can't get out of it right now, but you get out of it anyway. Okay. Eventually, yeah, a short time later. So in all cases, you do come out of it. In all cases, the roller coaster comes to an end, which means in all cases, you can come back to nourishing yourself so you can nourish yourself even when uh, you can see the dukkha, but you can't get out of it. You can at least nourish yourself right then and there, and guess what? That's the coming out of it. Do what I can, okay. <laughs> In a way, congratulate yourself for the wrongdoings that you're doing, because the congratulations is the cure for the wrongdoing. Yeah. 
Why? Yeah. Because you're, uh, you're, you're not congratulating yourself for the wrongdoing itself. You're congratulating yourself for seeing the wrongdoing. Because only when we see it can we avoid it. Otherwise, when really we want can't to see push it, also. it's I natural. Like I, I really want to push harder. Yeah, but see that too. See That's that necessary. pushing as just more critical mind. I mean, how many people do you know keep pushing and pushing and pushing? That's really like pushing to get the dukkha out, really. Yeah, but that's the whole point. You don't have to push it out. It's not your enemy. It's your teacher. It's your friend. Okay, I can get it out when I see the consequences. Yeah, the only way for dukkha, dukkha naroda is, is because if you, um, let us say, Let's talk about it in the sense of snakes. Some people are really deathly afraid of snakes. Most people are afraid of, of snakes a little bit. That means that we're most likely, if we're afraid of snakes, to mistake belts and sticks and other things like that for snakes. But because we make the mistake in one direction, we can make the mistake in the other direction. But if we're not afraid of snakes, but we're really looking for what's going on, then we see snakes as snakes and we see those things that are not snakes. They're not snakes. So this is the way. But that, but just because you can see and identify a snake as a snake doesn't make the snake dukkha. Until you don't see it and it bites you. But seeing the snake as a snake allows you to avoid the snake before you get close enough to the snake. Another example of that is cow pies or, uh, you know, the droppings of cattle or the droppings of goats that are in the pasture. And the, uh, the farmer has to go over to where the cows are. If he if he really wants to get to the cows, he's intent on getting the cows. He's pushing himself to the cows. By the time he gets to the cows, he's been covered with horse or cow shit. Cow pies. Why? Because he keeps stepping in them because he's not watching where he's going. He's more interested in the final goal. The right way to get over to the pasture is by watching every step to make sure that this place that I'm stepping does not have a cow pie. Or this particular thought. This is the teaching then that we need to look at that the destination say you're pushing yourself because you've got a goal in mind of getting over to the other side of the pasture where the cows are. And I've given you a much simpler goal, and that is, is that when you see Dukkha in the mind, treat it as a friend. Oh, I'm glad I see you. Hi there, but I'm not going to step on you. But if I'm not watching where I'm going, then the Dukkha becomes real Dukkha because I've got it all over me because I stepped in it mentally. So we begin to treat everything as nourishing. Thank you, Mr. Cowpie, for showing me that you were there so I don't have to step in you and mess both me and you up by stepping on you. Thank you yeah. for identifying yourself. The same thing then with the snake. Thank you, Mr. Snake, for showing me that you were a snake. That way you don't get hurt and neither do I. We're friends here. We're cooperating with each other because I can see you. If you can do that with a snake and you can do that with a real literal cow pie of watching where you're stepping. But another way would be 
don't step on uh, rakes and, and nails in boards and things like that. Right? We have to watch where we're stepping because it's dangerous if we don't. So we're glad we saw that nail in the board. We saw, we're glad we saw that rake. We're glad we see that uh, uh, thorn. We're glad we see it because then we don't step on it. So it's not dangerous if we can see it. Do that with the dukkha that you get in your mind also, that you can see that stuff and say, aha, I see you, aha, I got you, and therefore you're not dangerous. But I don't consider down that. And so this is, be sharp, this is what we mean by that. And so if you wake up and recognize that you have not been mindful, don't uh, actually see that dukkha as dukkha right there. Okay, I wasn't mindful. Aha, I see that I wasn't mindful. Congratulate yourself for seeing that you weren't mindful. Make that uh, recognition of the lack of mindfulness as a friend. It's a wake-up call. And back to the nurturing. And then you go right back to the nurturing. Everything winds up being nurturing. It's really amazing, Tamarato, and I, I really like to read uh, essays. Uh, there are a lot of people who t talk about that inner happiness, and uh, I think it's a universal thing. Some people. Well, it's it. universal in the sense that everybody yeah. wants it. Yeah. I mean, uh, everybody, like, uh, there are some writers well, who, like, they can feel it, they can talk well, about it. Not everyone, but. It's also, well, no, wait a minute. It's universal in the sense that anyone who practices correctly can get it. It's not for an elite few inherently. Like they see it. But, there are some people who talk about it, there writers that, who appreciate it. Right. That the selection process is made by the individual himself. That's the issue, is that we all come to the conclusion of how we're going to live this present moment, this, this moment right now. How are we going to do that? And we all make that choice, but many of us make that choice based upon um, a program that we were taught. And that is just to be dissatisfied, wanting things to be better, having the mentality of scarcity, or having the mentality of a victim, of being oppressed, that there's not enough to go around, and I need more and I want more. But when we become satisfied through nurturing, then everything's okay like it is. But in fact, there is enough. We do not live in a paradise of scarcity. There's plenty enough to go around. It's only the people who think that things are scarce that hoard. Really clear example of that is when they ran out of tissue paper at the start of the coronavirus. Why did people run out of tissue paper at the time of coronavirus? The answer was is because they were afraid. And it, and it was fear that drove them to the market to buy something because it was scarce. They heard that it was scarce, and so even more people went to buy tissue paper. And now they really, it is a scarcity. But it was only scarce because people thought it was scarce. And so they started to hoard it. When you begin to see that there's enough, 
that we don't have to see things critically, that we can see it in a nurturing way. There really is enough tissue. Yeah. Well, it's getting a, bit, a little bit too long, but uh, I want to talk about a little bit. I, I was reading uh, some uh, some time ago, uh, no, uh, you know, the, the French writer uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Uh, have you heard about it? He has I probably, book, yeah, go ahead and tell book, me about little it. Little Prince, he has the book called The Little Prince and something like that. He, he talked about he lived in the World War II era at the time. Mm hmm. He talked a little bit about that inner peace. And uh, he, well, he was doing the, the war, right? He was with mm -hmm. He talks a lot about that inner peace, and uh, it's really interesting how he got stuff right. Yeah. Even and though we, it was a war. Right. right. E even though we're in the middle of a battle. That, that in fact that happens to some soldiers is that they get so afraid, so uptight, and things are so ridiculous that they just literally freeze. But in that time of the freezing, they can chill out. That people do have sudden awakenings in battle. Yeah, he used are to so fly an airplane and bomb with an airplane, but. But he talks about that inner peace, which is something not appreciated. And uh, not not a lot of people, when you talk with them about an inner peace, they won't appreciate it. They, they would rather watch a movie or something. The cultural mm. condition. But I think it's interesting. At least it's, it's, it goes along with the practice to talk about that inner peace. It, it helps the practice a lot. Oh, well, I find it. It helps. That's true. Well, what do you think things are going to be like when you stop the internal turmoil? When you stop the competition, when you stop the uh, competitiveness, when you stop the criticism, things chill out. This That's is what the word Nirvana means. It actually means chill, baby, cool off, relax. Okay. And that relaxation then brings about that sense of everything is all right. Nothing is dangerous. I can get along just fine. And that's where that sense of inner peace comes from. That sense of inner peace is, hey, man, I got out of that situation. I survived that. I can survive anything. That's one of the ways of going through it. OK, there's uh, you could say that there's there's two ways to finish a race. One is to run it to the absolute finish line. And the other one is just sit down. Well, that way that you're talking about here, that's that's um, many people. You could actually say that this is why in the Mahasi method, when they have in the 16 stages of insight, they talk about uh, the, the stage in the middle where the meditation student goes through fear, misery, disgust, despair, and a great longing to get out of it. Okay, the whole point is the great longing to get out of it is then when he begins finally to take the right effort to get out of it. Yeah, I, I've read them, the, the 16, 16 steps. Uh, they kind of get confused. Well, I've been through, I think, all of them. At least most of them, but uh, they they kind of confuse me. I don't want to go there. Well, that's the whole point. Is yeah. is that uh, that they're not like they're not fast. 
there are things. Well, I've been through them. Obviously, I've been. Actually, you could go so far as to say that that's the outcome of the hard practice. Some will say the distance between the um, what what makes correct practice correct practice can be thought of in four ways. What makes correct practice correct practice is, is the most correct practice is is that it is a uh, a quick, easy path. The next possibility is is that it is uh, a, a, another way of practicing is a quick, hard path. That's the path of the warrior, getting yourself into a situation that's so tough that when you come out of it, you know you can handle anything. If you can handle that, you can handle anything. And then there's the other way, which is the slow, hard way. And that is the Mahasi way that we're talking about in the sense that you get yourself eventually to a point that things are so bad that you are determined to get out of it. You've hit rock bottom. But now that you've hit rock bottom, you know you can handle rock bottom. I can handle anything. If I can put myself through all of that crap and get over it, I can handle anything. I was kind of like that, really. I, I told like the 16 steps I've been, I, I think I've been through all of them. Mm-hmm. Well, Whereas, guess what? But, we uh, all uh, go through them. What I noticed, uh, like the, uh, the first and the second and like the, uh, the alignment is not like right all the time. Like maybe the, the seventh before the sixth, something like that. Like they're not like steps. They're not uh, like climbing a ladder. That's why I told you that they're not a path because you can get like the, for example, the tenth step before the sixth step, for example. Well, they're not yes. steps one after the other. That's why I told you they're not a path. But what that actually means is that it's a mixture then of uh, wrong practice and right practice. That eventually there's enough right practice in there to to take over. And there's also the fourth one that I had started to mention, and that is the slow easy. It looks like I've been on the slow easy. <laughs> uh, so the the slow easy path has to do with the fact that we don't never any have much dukkha because we're fairly good at getting rid of the dukkha. And because of that, we don't see some of the dukkha. And so we continually put up with some, but we're very good at getting rid of most of it. To where on the battlefield, you've got so much of it that you've got to deal with it right now. And the normal meditator that they put themselves into such a fix that they become determined to get out of it. All right. Very, very few people ever get the quick easy. That's something that we haven't stumbled across yet. But it looks like that uh, that could have been the practice of Sariputta and some others, that there is a slow, easy path. And that's so easy is when we're ready to see dukkha as dukkha in the sense that 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 too is a friend. But this friend is a teacher and and what is teaching me is to avoid it because it's dangerous. Okay, that you would that in fact, let us say this, if somebody served you a glass of wine or tea or cup of coffee or something like that and uh, Someone came and whispered, hey, that that's poison. Somebody has poisoned that tea. 
Aren't you grateful that they told you that it was poison? Because now you don't drink it. If you were ignorant of it being poison, you would have drank it and suffered the consequences. So now what we're saying is, is that, that you want to be informed that that's poison, that you can see the dangers in it. So before we were taking only gratification and not seeing the dangers, and we wind up in being completely dissatisfied or in dukkha, as opposed to being able to see it and then recognize, oh, that's what it is, and I don't need to spend more than one or two mind moments in it before I see what it is, and then I can immediately come out of it. In other words, I'm grateful that somebody has served me poison because I know that it's poison. Now I know. But a lot of people will say, oh, he couldn't have done that to me. It's not poison. Here, let me test it. But when we recognize it as poison, when we hear it as poison, when we learn it as poison, that means that we can immediately um, uh, come out of it. But we yeah. can come out of it with the gratitude of knowing that that's poison that we're avoiding. That yeah, it's not giving us all gratification. Yeah, that nurturing, it's needed in the right practice. I mean, that's the, the ultimate nurturing. It's, it's the goal. So. Right, is to see the dukkha. That's the goal. Because if you see it correctly, you've already avoided it, or the seeing it is the avoiding it, or the seeing it is the right effort to come out of it. But that means it needs to be practiced. In the beginning, it can be more effort, but ultimately, it's almost automatically. As soon as you see the the danger, you can avoid it. But in the beginning, we're slow. And so... When you see the danger, one of the things you do is, oh, no, that's so dangerous. Not recognizing it, oh, no, it's so dangerous, is also dangerous. Yeah. Uh, I, there's, uh, I, I don't know if I talked to you about it, uh, the Alibaba story. Did I tell you about it? About Alibaba? You talked about the, huh? I the story. I yeah, the story of Alibaba. Uh uh-huh. back back. I know the story. When he went into the cave. It was uh, an amazing uh, as, uh-huh. as amazing. far as I understand, the open sesame and the Alibaba was one of the tales that was told by Shahrazad no, 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 in uh, a thousand uh, and one nights. Yeah, it, it was not it's not Alibaba, it's uh, Aladdin. Aladdin, right. I think Alibaba is uh um, Yeah, yeah. The thieves with the forty thieves. Right, that that that's yeah. the mantra. All right, okay. Aladdin, it's Aladdin. Aladdin. Yeah. Um, so I, I, the mantra just uh, I'm going to put my charger because I'm going uh, to run out of battery. Okay. Just, yeah, sorry about that.
Okay. Uh, okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm waiting on the, the cave and uh, Aladdin and Alibaba and all of that. Yeah, uh, when, when, I, uh, when it hit me, uh, it was a few months ago that I remembered it and I was so amazed. It's a, it's a big metaphor. It's a big lesson. Aladdin, mm -hmm. the, the original story, it's a lesson. And when I understood it, like it hit me like that, understood it, I thought, who was that genius who made that story? I, I, <laughs> I didn't realize I got the message of the story. So I searched for it and I found that it was a Mormon uh, priest wrote it. And I, then I confirmed that guy was like real. He, he knew what he talked about. It's not, it was not like <laughs> story for kids. It was something else. Uh, he talks about Aladdin when he enters the cave. When he enters the cave, there's gold in the right, there's gold and treasures right and left. He should not look at it. He should be focused on the path. Uh -huh. When he goes straight to the path, he doesn't like get. I remember yes. He gets the real treasure, the genie uh, lamp. Mm -hmm. And that's the practice. He talks about the mind, about the heart. That's and what guess what? About. The lamp that's itself. The lamp itself is the metaphor for light, to turn the lights on, to don't go for the gold and the jewels and the baubles that are on uh, aside the path. You've got to go the path of the light to get the lamp. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when it hit me, it was so amazed. And then it was confirmed when I, I directly searched for who wrote it. And when I found out it's the Mormon priest, I confirmed that, yeah, that guy really thought he knows what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing metaphor. People miss it, but it's right there. Yes, that's because we leave these things as children's stories and fairy tales and things like that, rather than picking out and understanding the really deeper meaning deeper in, meaning, yeah. in, in those things. Uh, that's why we need art, is to, remember, uh, to remind us that there's hidden meaning in these stories that, that can be life's lessons. Um, the example that I generally use is something from the, uh, the Buddha suttas, and, and actually it's quite early, that the Buddha has two different suttas where he uses dogs as teachers. The dogs themselves become teachers to humans, and I've always seen that in the sense that we can learn something from anyone. And we learn by uh, their behavior and their mistakes and whatnot like that. And one of the things that we can see is in profound lessons that are buried sometimes in stories and in literature and things like that. That's in fact, uh, they call the Aesop's fables, Aesop's fables, because there's a hidden meaning in every one of those stories. Sometimes some stories have multiple meanings. Yeah, a lot of the uh, original Buddhist stuff, there are a lot of metaphors. Some of them I can get them. Some others, uh, it's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. They talk about animals and that kind of stuff. They have deeper meanings. I, I know that. Mm -hmm. Not exactly. all the time I can figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the example would be the story of Adam and Eve. And that many people uh, uh, focus on the surface stuff, like talking snakes and apples and uh, fig leaves and uh, the woman ate it first and all of that kind of stuff. But really the deeper teaching and the moral is, is that when we become judgmental, we destroy our paradise. 
the critical thinking of the mind, the knowledge of good and evil. This is good. I know that. This is bad. This is evil. I know that. That knowledge is destructive. Is critical. Rather than, hey, you're in paradise. You're good enough. Hey, you're in paradise. You're good enough. And that is such a hard lesson because it goes against our entire civilization is always trying to improve things, make technology better, make our housing better, make our food better. But inside we destroy the human mind. We don't make it better because the human mind is always critical. If we could change it into a nurturing mind, we may not get so much stuff on the outside world built, but that's because we don't care. (laughs) We're not so critical. And so you could say that, in fact, a more civilized and the more technological a society is, the more likely it's going to be miserable, uptight business. And a more primitive society that's laid back is more likely to have people who are happy. The technology itself, when we turn our technology against the individual self, we do it with the same tools of critical thinking. And by doing that, we're criticizing. So you wind up there criticizing yourself. When you see Duca, you're criticizing yourself. Oh, that's Duca. You should not do that. Instead of saying, oh, thank you for showing yourself. And coming into that nurturing frame of reference. So, yes, we've got the whole society against us because everyone has already been taught critical thinking and everybody goes around critical thinking on everybody else, criticizing and what's not like that. So instead of buying into that criticism and say, oh, I want to get rid of that, get away from that criticism. By doing so, we wind up taking the criticism with us into seclusion. But when we recognize then that, no, we need to come out of the critical thinking into the nurturing thinking, when we get successful of that over and over and over again, to take that old habit of being critical into the habit of being nurturing, now we can take that back to society and start nurturing society, which is starved for nurturing because it's so critical all the time. But they, in fact, might start becoming critical of your nurturing. But that's okay. That doesn't mean that I'm going to stop nurturing and come critical back to them. No, let me stay in that state of nurturing. Let me stay in friendship and cooperation. So you have to learn to do that by yourself first, because that inner, that outer dialogue that you have with society, you have that same dialogue inside your own mind. And so you need to come to be friends with everything that's happening on the inside. That's who you are. And becoming friends with yourself on the inside, including your critical mind. Make friends with that critical mind. Nurture your critical mind. (laughs) Instead of being critical of your critical mind. That's how you've taken it all. Critical mind is bad. I'm going to be critical of the critical mind. Instead of saying, oh, no, we can nurture the critical mind. It's okay that I'm critical. Yeah, that's good. I'm really good at being critical. But I can see it now. And I can nurture it. And when I nurture being critical, now I'm practicing nurturing. 
I know this is a really hard concept to get through. Uh, I think you've got it. I think you're getting it. You can begin to say, yeah, I can be really, really easygoing, really, really understanding and nurturing to myself while I catch myself screwing up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because only then by nurturing can I really see it. If I am not happy with catching myself screw up, I'm not going to see it so much. I'm going to try to avoid it. Oh, you should be doing better than that. Stop doing that. Okay. Instead of, oh, yeah, it's okay. But look at the danger. Look at the damage that it does. And we can see, oh, yeah, there's a better way to do it. I can be happy instead. Rather than being critical of my critical mind, I can be nurturing to my critical mind. Instead of being afraid of my fear, I can become friends with my fear. Oh, yeah, my fear just come up. Let me inspect that. Let's look and see what's going on. Only by coming friends to yourself on the inside, being friends with your fear, friends with your critical thinking, friends with everything like that, only then can the mind become whole and unified. Otherwise, we're a crowd. And every aspect of the mind is criticizing other aspects of the other parts of the mind. (laughs) And so learning to be really, really nurturing to yourself, including the critical part of the mind, including the screw up part of the mind, including the pounding and the angry and the frustrated and the uh, fearful part of the mind, start to take a nurturing attitude for all of that. Okay. Take a nurturing attitude. Yeah, my friend, my fear is my friend. It just is too friendly sometimes. It just keeps pouting off when, in fact, it could be comfortable and quiet and happy. But the fear keeps coming up. But if we don't like our fear, then we become fearful of fear and we keep it going. So always go back to the wholesome thought. Always back to everything's okay, everything's fine. I can nurture even though I screw up because I'm really willing to look at it and accept that screw up, that it's part of me or it's part of the whole. It's not really me because the me is the one who is doing the nurturing. That's who I become is nurturement itself. Ah, what a relief. <laughs> I've really enjoyed watching you grow over time. You've really made some remarkable improvements, and I wanted to congratulate you for that. It's remarkable the changes that you've made. Yeah, okay. Thank you, Damaraka. I, I, I really do enjoy talking with you. It's the advice. It's been great. It's been really joyful. I hope to see you again soon. Let's go ahead and finish this conversation and we'll continue on later. But we can end on this high note of, ah, everything's okay. We can nurture even the critical mind. Yeah. Okay, then.
Thanks, Demarato, and uh, see you next time. See you.